0: Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman.
1: Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Tim Knight. Uh, he is a author of his, a new book called uh, the Panic, Prosperity, and Progress, Five Centuries of History and the Markets. He also runs a website called slopeofhope.com. Welcome to the show, Tim.
2: Thank you very much for having me, Jordan.
1: Give us a little bit of background for people who aren't familiar with you and uh, your, your long history of trading and
2: what led you to want to uh, write this book. Certainly. Well, I've been trading a long time. Um, I guess uh, uh, not fortuitously or strangely. My very first trade was placed on Black, Mon- uh, Black Monday back in 87. And uh, just before then, I kind of started getting into the world of technical analysis because I'd been mixed up with personal computers pretty much from the start. I uh, got my first computer way back in early 1980, and as I started to learn more about computers and software and started to write about them, uh, by happenstance, I saw a book called uh, How to Profit in Bull and Bear Markets, and that got me into the world of charting. And so I've, I've been charting ever since. And a few years into my trading career, I started a little company called Profit which is uh, P-R-O-P-H-E-T, but uh, was meant as a bit of a pun. And it was a financial data company that we grew into a website. And I uh, hired people and and got some very talented folks to uh, create a website really dedicated to technical analysis. And we sold that uh, back in 2005 to what eventually became Ameritrade. So the products that we created in those profit days are still live and well on the web, and all this time, about the past quarter century or so, I guess I've been charting and trading, and I started my blog that you mentioned um, just after I sold the company so back in uh, March two thousand and five, so about to have uh, uh, birthday here for uh, Slope of Hope, uh, I started writing this blog, and it's gotten a pretty big following. The uh, blog, like me, tends to uh, be very focused on charts and and kind of focused on the, the short side of the market, the bare side of the market. And although I'd written a whole bunch of books about computers and how to use different computers and different applications, and I'd done a couple of books about charting after Profit Charts came out, um, I had never done a book about history, even though history has been a long-time love of mine. And so it was really an intersection of my love of, of uh, history and technical analysis Specifically, charting that led to me wanting to create a book about seeing the past several hundred years through the lens of these ups and downs that we all experience in the financial markets.
1: It's certainly been dramatic. When you sold out, it was to Invest Tools. I mean, I know it's part of PD Ameritrade, but if yeah. people want to see profit today, is it part of Invest Tools or it's something, has it been subsumed by Invest Tools? Or-
2: it, it, it is. I mean, the, the sort of uh, chain of events was the company that actually bought us was Invest Tools, which is an investor education company. And, in fact, I dedicated my book to uh, uh, the man in charge. Yeah, Lee Barber. Yeah. Lee Barber, yes. And um, soon after that, I think the next year, uh, Thinkorswim, which is an options brokerage based in Chicago, founded by Tom Sosnoff, um, they merged with Invest Tools and became a Thinkorswim group. And then after that, I think the next year, Ameritrade bought the whole schmear. And so um, kind of the crown jewel of what profit created is profit charts. And that's really just in two places now. It's it's on the Invest Tools website, um, and it's also folded into um, the Thinkorswim platform. I see. Uh, Before we
1: get into this, tell people a little bit about what they can find at slopeofhope.com. There's a lot of different postings on there, but
2: give people a sense
1: of what they can find there.
2: Well, it's you know it's uh, been, been around a while. It's probably one of the longest-standing uh, financial blogs there is out there, and it. Um, I'll say this: if if there's any bear blood in your veins, you just got to go to Slope because uh, it's it really uh, pulses with a lot of contrarian uh, articles and discussions and thinking. Not to say that it's just a bunch of bears running around. There's there's a great mix of traders there, um, but over the course of time, I mean, there's been something like. Twelve or 13,000 different articles posted on the site. It's free. Uh, It's updated all the time. I mean, my my life kind of revolves around it because I'm I'm constantly uh, creating articles myself or other guest contributors are contributing articles. But the cool thing about the blog, it has nothing to do with me. It has to do with the people reading it because I've created a platform for discussion specifically for Slope. And Slope is definitely not the most popular destination on the web for traders uh, to go to, but it has got to be one of the most popular places for discussion. There are like thousands of comments posted there every day. There's this whole community that's sprung up around it. And so um, the, the, the comment section kind of dwarfed everything I've created. So it's a very vibrant community of traders that just talk all, all day and all night long.
1: It's kind of interesting. Here we are on the fifth year anniversary of the bull market, -hmm. So how have all the bears on slope of hope done the last five years during the roaring bull markets we've had?
2: Yeah, rotten. I mean, there's uh, (laughs) you know, which is probably why it's not all bears. You know, there, you know, plenty of folks have just thrown in the towel. And um, you know, bear markets run in all stripes. I mean, for example, if you were bearish on precious metals, you've had a wonderful market for the past three years. Um, So it's really, I mean, it's not like you go there and there's this there's this big bears only sign. And as I said, there's a great mix of traders in there. I think probably the most common thread that runs through them isn't so much uh, bearishness on the markets, but a a love of technical analysis um, and different methods of viewing various markets in order to make trading decisions. And, you know, believe me, plenty of friendly fistfights break out all the time amongst traders because there's lots of different views. That's what makes a market. But in terms of uh, the past five years, no, it's been brutal for anybody who just doesn't simply close their eyes and buy with both fists.
1: Yes. Um, in addition to slopeofhope.com and the book, do you also have a private money management service uh, that you do as yeah. well?
2: Yeah, I um, I started that. It's a, a Basically, you know, my day rotates around charts and the way that expresses itself is several ways. I mean, one is that I've got a small uh, hedge fund that I run my own money in and a uh, small number of other folks. And then I've got the blog. And then also I mentioned Tom Sosnoff earlier. He started a kind of a financial network that I have a segment on each day. So my work day is really anchored. Toward trading hours, and I, I do all those things the money management, the, the blogging, as, as well as the uh, original content for Tom's Company.
1: Very good. All right, well, we're going to get into the whole history of all these different panics and ups and downs and so on, but before we get into some specifics, kind of give us the overall impression you've got, what, what you've learned mm-hmm. seeing all these huge ups and huge downs for all these different reasons, but what are some of the lessons you've taken away from that that would apply? Uh, to today as to kind of human psychology and how can get caught up in things and then be so disappointed
2: and so on. Right. Well, you know, the, the whole basis, the entire uh, platform on which technical analysis is based, I think, is that history repeats itself. And the reason history repeats itself is because human beings... Um, don't live to be 3,000 years old. They live to be about 80. And uh, then a the whole new bunch of uh, babies comes around and they don't know anything either. And You know, history's lessons don't really sink in generation to generation. So human nature is relatively consistent and thus history tends to repeat itself in some form or another. And, you know, the tired old saw that you hear, especially in the bubble markets like we're in now, is, you know, it's different this time. And my premise of the book is that, no, it's the same this time. Because what I found deeply when researching this book and, and writing about uh, all these various financial events is that there's a template uh, in human nature that uh, really does find itself repeating. So, for example, if you, if you wanted to be a technology person, uh, the right thing to do is to study what exists right this second not going to learn Fortran. You're not going to learn Cobol. You're not going to learn how to make excellent uh, uh, whips for buggies. You're going to study what's new and modern and, and fresh because things change all the time. But in the world of the financial markets, you know you can't apply the same thing. Uh, you can't say, well, the, the only analysis that matters is to study Twitter and to study Facebook and, and to study um, Tesla. Th- th- this is the new world we're in. It's ridiculous to look at the great depression or tulip mania or any of that stuff because uh, that was hundreds of years ago that's old news now my view is that that it, it's worthwhile to have a sense as to what's happened in the past because it's it's just eye-popping how similar some of these past events are to the modern age
1: so is your hope to change human nature here by having this book that explains this over and over no people no. Will, will read it and therefore Absolutely. say i'm not going to do the same thing again
2: no, well, my, my, not at all. That's impossible. I mean, I, I could be, I could be you know, the best-selling author in the history of the planet, which, if anybody's wondering, I'm not, uh, and not achieve that. Uh, what I'm hoping to achieve is to let wh- whoever does elect to read the book to recognize that uh, human nature does have consistent patterns to it, and those can be uh, used to, I think, provide insights into what's happening in the world around us today. So
1: let's start with our first one, uh, which is tulip madness. People often talk about the the tulip craze and so on. So just briefly, why did tulips become so uh, highly prized and and fall so sharply?
2: Well, you know, um, in its day, uh, uh, Amsterdam was kind of the New York and London and Singapore all wrapped up into one uh that was you know the hot place where all the new money was i mean in a way you know my own town where i'm standing right now palo alto uh, is expressing this because you've got all this new money sloshing around you've got all these new centimillionaires and billionaires and um some people like to you know show off uh and so at the time um there was a lot of kind of New money kind of being spent on, on sort of garish displays, and people loved uh, things from overseas and that were glittery and gold and interesting. And one object that came about uh, was the tulip. This was a very novel item. I mean, imagine if today some incredible new flower that no one had ever seen before on Earth showed up, and it was just gorgeous and exciting. Naturally, scarcity creates value, and people would clamor for it. That's kind of what happened with the tulip. Um, in addition although they didn't have the science to understand it at the time, um, there were certain bulbs which uh, had an innate virus which made their coloration, they were literally called bizarres. I mean, they were were unusual and fiery and, and looked like something out of science fiction, so those were especially prized. So, in the most basic, you had this way to show off your newfound wealth. You could surround your kind of big mansion with uh, uh, showy displays of this beautiful flower. Uh, And then coupled with that, uh, there became what we in the modern day would call kind of a futures market around this uh, because there's a relatively limited supply. And it as with a lot of bubbles, it really just fed on itself the excitement and the trading around this. And um, it became exponentially valuable until, of course, one day the crickets were chirping and there weren't any buyers to be had. I
1: see. Uh, We're actually going to take a break and come back in the middle of our tulip frenzy, and we'll have lots more frenzies to come. My guest this hour on the Money Answer Show is Tim Knight. Uh, His new book is called Panic, Prosperity, and Progress, Five Centuries of History in the Markets. Uh, His website blog that you can find out more about what he does is slopeofhope.com. We'll be back after this.
3: Always in business. Talk to an expert. Call now toll free 866 472 5790. That's 866 472 5790. Voice America Business Network. If you want to know about investing in emerging and frontier markets, Or if you have experience in this field but still need to know more, tune in to Emerging and Frontier Markets Investing with Gavin Graham. Gavin explores news, current trends, and insights about both categories of investing. His guest experts, along with his own knowledge, will help you stay above the line when it comes to growth potential, whether in funds or equities. He will look at what to invest in and avoid. Tune in to Emerging and Frontier Markets Investing with Gavin Graham. Every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America
0: Business Channel. Do you know that over 70% of Americans with severe disabilities are unemployed? Are you one of the 2.5 million Americans with epilepsy? If you are or know someone struggling with these issues, tune in to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender.
1: Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Tim Knight. Uh, He is an ardent student of financial history and just came out with a new book called Panic, Prosperity, and Progress, Five Centuries of History and the Markets. His blog and website is slopeofhope.com. Welcome back to the show, Tim. Thank you much. We're in the middle of uh, the tulip mania here. So tell us how hot it got and then why, as you say, the crickets didn't come out. What, What changed it from being super hot to collapsing so quickly
2: yeah well i mean uh the, the the price itself leapt um as these things do slowly at first and then as word began to spread uh people just got more and more excited about falling all over each other to get a hold of these things and so it increased um, essentially about 20 fold and just as a virus was partly the credit For uh, the popularity of some of these bulbs, because they created these amazing patterns, another kind of virus, the human virus, was to blame, It said, uh, for the things stopping the excitement, because uh, there was an auction held, and uh, I believe the town was uh, Harlem, uh, and there were plenty of sellers there, um, raring to go, but supposedly, because of an outbreak of the bubonic plague, Plague, people were scared to head out in the streets, and so no buyers show up. But as I mentioned in the book, that didn't really keep the sellers from from, uh, showing up. So you you essentially had, again, what we would call in the modern day, uh, a no-bid kind of market. And people who were very leveraged at the time um, just had to get out in a big, big hurry uh, because the, the government itself had been... Of aid to the speculation because they kept rewriting the rules to become more and more favorable to those holding what were essentially very leveraged long positions. And uh, the moment uh, things saw the slightest downtick, uh, it, it just cascaded down very, very quickly. So, within a matter of just a few days, all the gains that they had seen built over many, many months disappeared. And as with any market, bear markets have one nice feature, which is they're very, very fast. So for for impatient people like myself, it's kind of a nice place to be in.
1: So what are the signs that you can learn from the tulip craze and how it crashed to know when it's peaking and cresting and when to get out before it does crash?
2: Right. Well, I mean, one thing I would say about the book in general is that it, it's, it's not a compendium of, of crashes, um, although that's an element of it. And there's, there's, a, there's a variety of uh, overheated markets that are discussed. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's a funny thing because uh, if you ask people their political views, no matter what they might be, they'll probably claim to be, you know, socially liberal and politically, I mean, uh, financially conservative, because that just sounds like a sensible position. By the same token, a lot of people claim to be contrarians which kind of is impossible because if everyone's a contrarian, then nobody can be. Mm-hmm. And uh, having said that, the thing is that if there's some given uh, technology or idea or, or, or movement happening that it seems everybody's talking about and everybody's doing articles about and, and uh, you know your, your fifth grade kid has been hearing about, it's time to wonder how close to the top you might be. I mean, a perfect example today, would be like with 3D printing, because uh, I, I stay on top of techno- technology trends myself. I I tend to be an early adopter of these things, and uh, there's been more and more and more talk about 3D printing, and I sort of scratched my head because I would see the output from these things and wonder, you know, how many... Uh, little bitty cheapish toys. Does one care to print? I mean, where's the utility here? And so finally, Barron's does this cover story about 3D printing uh, and a very bearish article on them, and then very swiftly things start selling off. And so once you have this um, uh, mass uh, excitement about anything, uh, it, it's time to look for a top. But the danger there is that it's easy for the media to saturate the public with a concept or a new technology long before the actual peak because you could go back to say to nineteen ninety seven or nineteen ninety eight and look at how much was being discussed about the internet And it's true it was flooding the media outlets with internet this and that but it was a good long time and several hundred percent before the nasdaq finally broke and then in the span of a very short amount of time all those uh, giant games disappeared. So unfortunately, it's not a simple thing to simply look out there and say, well, there's been five cover stories, and that's my indicator. I'm going to short everything now. That can be very, very hazardous. But it's at least a data point to look for. Yeah.
1: I mean, it's, as you say, though, psychologically, if you're short and it keeps going up because the, the fever hasn't broken for a while, it can quite painful, <laughs> waiting for the fever to break, if you can survive that
2: long. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you, you could have, uh, if, if you had shorted the NASDAQ to pieces in December uh, of 1999, you would have been extraordinarily close to the top. And you would have had to suffer pretty much a 100% drawdown before you got to enjoy any profits. You know, so, you know, things like the, the, the queer thing about these bubbles is that the last whoosh to the upside is usually the shortest and for any bears out there the most painful because that's when the final squeeze takes place. You get this kind of blow-off top happening, and then suddenly that's with the tulips, you know, the crickets are chirping and nobody's there to buy anymore.
1: What would be an example today, is it 3D printing that you think is is at that level of wild over-speculation, overheated hype?
2: I wouldn't, I mean, I don't know if net, that's, net, I mean, the, the, there aren't a the heck of a lot of uh, charts to look at related to that. I mean, DDD is obviously kind of the, the kingpin here. One one uh, particular group that seems to, lately on a daily basis, leap 10 or 15 or 20 percent uh, is anything to do with alternate energy. Um, you know, I'm looking, uh, for example, FCEL, which is fuel cell energy, uh, I think uh, also, um, there's a couple of other leaders out there, which, which tend to be, nobody heard of them a year ago, and now they're at the top of the leaderboard in terms of volume uh, on the exchanges. Um, but I, it, as I said earlier, um, for, as a technician, you look at them, and yes, they're in very nice basing patterns, and it makes sense that they're lifting like this, but does it make sense for something, which no one was talking about a couple of weeks back, to be jumping 15% per day. So I I don't have any specific industry to point at and say that's the one uh, that's headed for trouble. What I will say in general is that if you look at, for example, the Russell 2000, if you look at the small caps, they are at such lofty levels. They are really priced for perfection. And uh, the sentiment out there on stocks is just so grotesquely bullish that uh, to me it seems um, it, it would be difficult to find new buyers ready to step up at these price levels.
1: So you think some of the highest uh, valuation stocks, uh, Netflix, Tesla, Twitter, Facebook, uh, Yelp, all these companies are, are pretty much wildly overvalued because they're too enthusiastic now?
2: Well, you know, I kind of break them into different categories because um, there, there are some stocks that even, although there's really nothing I love more than shorting a the stock, there's some that are on my do not touch with a 10 foot pole" list. Um, because you know stocks are a little like people. They have, I think, personalities, and you get along well with some uh, and don't get so along well with others. And there are a handful of stocks, you know, Priceline uh, leaps to mind, um, uh, which, to me, defy any uh, expectation of relaxation. You know, Netflix is another great example. I mean, it's a terrific company. They've got subscribers on the down, but they just never, ever seem to uh drop. I mean it's it's perpetually exploding higher. So just like they say don't try to catch a falling knife in the market, this is just the opposite of that. So uh yeah, I'm short Tesla right now for example. Great company. I bought one of the first Tesla S's out there. It's the most best car I've ever owned in my life, but in terms of a chart, that's the kind of company which seems very prone to uh to slipping lower.
1: Yeah. Okay, so your next uh, big one you talk about in the book is called The Mississippi Scheme mm-hmm. uh, about John Law. So to briefly tell us the story of what happened with John Law and his stock.
2: Well, you know, until he came along, uh, the, the notion of money was precious metals, coins that were clinking around in, your, uh, in a bag or in a pocket. And he really revolutionized people's ability to accept the notion of what money really is, because he introduced um, a widely accepted paper money. Now, he had very tight ties with the royalty at the time, and the the crown recognized how beneficial and profitable um, introducing uh, this uh, dynamic, fervent market for uh, paper money would be to the nation, uh, particularly with respect to dealing with uh, debts they had from past wars, and um, it, it's sort of like how in the United States, uh, credit cards. I'm sure when they first appeared in the '50s, it was extremely alien concept to have you know a rectangular piece of plastic and have people accept this uh, for bills. Now, of course, you know even a five year old kid understands the concept of credit cards. Same thing in uh, 18th century France. With uh, these notes that were being passed around, and the interesting thing here is that there became um, a stock, as it were, that uh, was backed by this prospect of where I grew up, Louisiana, uh, because you know France had this tremendous territory in Louisiana, which uh, nobody really knew what it was like or what was there, but all these fanciful stories started to circulate about. Uh, kind of the Shangri La that was there, and all the fortunes that lay awaiting. And so they would they would speak, for example, about um, all the furs that could be harvested. Which, believe me, having lived through Louisiana summers, there's no creature out there that has <laughs> on it. Um, they would speak about. Um, Almost like mountains of gold, like these these, these, these hills made of, uh, with, just littered with with uh, precious gemstones and uh, rich with veins of, of precious metals, just science fiction basically. But it became very believable. And one of the more comic incidents that took place uh, when things were getting a little dicey uh, after a big run up in price is that you know John Law hired a bunch of convicts to uh, grab a shovel and march sort of like a, a row of soldiers down the street you know off to the land of Louisiana to, to harvest um, some of the riches there just to continue to prop up this uh, notion that uh, France had this bounty over there which holders of this stock would benefit from. Um, it became more and more comic you know near the end as, as they tried to keep the keep the um, uh, dream alive and then when things started, falling, they fell very quickly, and of course, just before then, the really shrewd among them made sure to change those notes for nice, uh, valuable gold and get the hell out of town uh, while, while the getting was still good.
1: Well, so it was a similar kind of situation, with a lot of hype, and then reality kind of came in.
2: Yeah, and reality comes in swiftly because it, it's sort of like um, the spell is broken, and it's broken very, very quickly. Uh, and, you know, a- afterwards, uh, John Law was very much a-, a marked man. I mean, he used to be uh, this very celebrated hero uh, to uh, to the people of France. And when things broke, um, he was terrified for his own life uh, mm-hmm. and-, and fled very quickly. In fact, a, a great way to, uh, uh, one of the anecdotes I share in here is that um, one man was being pursued, um, and when they captured him, he uh, pointed out a compatriot that had fled. That, that was John Law, you know. And of course, everybody left to chase him instead. So, John Law, his name became mud soon after things broke. <laughs> and he he died penniless.
1: People don't like to have people losing lots of money. I guess it's kind of like what happened with Bitcoin recently. I suppose.
2: Yeah, exactly. I'm I'm sure the founder of Mount Gox uh, doesn't exactly uh, walk <laughs> around the streets <laughs> of Japan right now. It's. Uh, Advertising it. The market yeah. Very good.
1: All right, we're going to take another break. Uh, This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Tim Knight. As you can see, he's an ardent student of financial history. Uh, His new book is called Panic, Prosperity, and Progress, Five Centuries of History in the Markets. His website, following technical analysis, is slopeofhope.com. We'll be back after this.
3: Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now, toll free, 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790, Voice America Business Network. In sales, are you a lion or a vulture? Lions don't wait, they just go for it. Is your business model robust enough? In today's ever-changing business environment, people are working to transform themselves, their futures, and their business. Tune in to Business Reinvention with your host, Nancy Lynn. To stay ahead of the game in business, you have to constantly reinvent yourself and your organization. With Nancy's experience and that of her guest experts, you'll learn from stories of inspiration, innovation, and forward thinking. Listen for Business Reinvention, live every Monday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.
0: You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan.
1: Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Tim Knight, an ardent student of financial history. He's come out with a new book called Panic, Prosperity, and Progress, Five Centuries of History and the Markets. His website slash blog is called slopeofhope.com. Welcome back to the show, Tim. Thank you much. Before we go back to history, let's just talk about what happened in the last month or so, uh, which is the sudden rise and sudden collapse of Bitcoin. Does that fit into the same pattern uh, you talk about in the book?
2: Yeah, it, it really does. I mean, I you know I know the next chapter we're going to talk about was the South Sea Bubble. And when I look at the chart of uh, Bitcoin, which, um, you know, there's all kinds of websites whose Sole Purpose in Life is to show you the the chart of uh, Bitcoin. Uh, It just reminded me of that because you've got, you know, a lot of people uh, point out the fact that fiat money, you know, the paper bills we carry um, in our wallets, are really just uh, a concept, a notion. They're they're a piece of worthless paper backed by uh, a pledge, you know, the full faith and credit of the United States government. And people become accustomed to this having value, so they just accept it, you know, even though it's so-called valueless, Believe me, if you throw a few hundred dollars out on the sidewalk, people will snap it up quite quickly because they know that it's still accepted as valuable. But Bitcoin took that another step. You know, it's not even a piece of worthless paper. Now it's a, 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 a worthless uh, string of uh, crypto, you know, alpha numerics. And in spite of that, in spite of being backed by nothing except its scarcity... Uh, they started leaping in price, you know, from, from $5 to 10 to 50 to 100 to 500 and then, you know, we saw late last year this explosive movement up until where it matched, uh, the price of gold, which is yeah. this, you know, 4,000 year, uh, respected instrument as a store value. And, um, that, it, you know, there's nothing magical about the price of gold, but appropriately enough, I suppose that was kind of when the ridiculousness of the situation exceeded itself, and it began to reverse. Now, it hasn't gone back to you know twenty dollars a bitcoin, but it seems on its way. It's lost about half of its value, um, and of course, a big promulgator of that lately has been one of the uh, kind of the principal trading uh, website for this. Mount um, Gox has declared bankruptcy and uh, because you know, those bitcoins were stolen, and it, it's, it's, it's sort of like waking up and your wallet stuffed fat with $100 bills suddenly is empty, and there's just nothing you can do about it. It, it was made of disappearing paper.:
1: So were you saying this was going to happen you th- when this was going up that, that exponentially you thought this would be another bubble to break? To break?
2: Well, um, Bitcoin, you know I didn't understand it deeply enough to, nor did I trade it, so I didn't really make a point of talking about, oh, well, go out there and short Bitcoin. One good friend of mine, in the midst of Mt. Gox kind of blowing up, did write me and say, oh, I think there's an arbitrage opportunity here because on Mt. Gox it's this price and over here it's a much higher price so I could buy it here and sell it there. And I really cautioned him, you know, not to do that, simply because trying to take advantage of this anomaly didn't seem like even a very safe speculative trade, which turned out to be the case because now Mt. is gone.
0: Um,
2: yes. But it, it definitely is very reminiscent of some of the manias out there because, I mean, you can point out to highly valued stocks um, and the percentage changes there aren't nearly as tremendous as what we saw with Bitcoin.
1: Yeah. All right. Let's go back in history to the South Sea again. So what got people so excited about the South Sea company and why did it ultimately collapse?
2: Well, this was another example of uh, people taking advantage um, of a situation in which there was ignorance about what was out there. Uh, so, you know, if, for example, let's say uh, missions to Mars became plausible these days, which, you know, there will come a day, uh, I'm sure there will be new public companies based upon, like, mining Mars, you know, all the valuable things we could find for Mars. That's kind of how it was like back in you know, the, the early 1700s, because to them, like South America was just as far away and alien to them as Mars would be to us today. And so um, uh, Britain made an arrangement with Spain for uh, trading privileges, which the trading privileges themselves were of very, very little value. But the way the promoters of South Sea made it sound, um, it was just like a monopoly. On trading uh, of goods and so South Sea itself began accelerating the price uh, at a tremendous rate um, it zoomed from about a hundred per share up into about a thousand um, in 1790 and, and the first portion of 1720 and other uh, stock promoters began to take notice just like the the big event with the internet was when Netscape went public in mm-hmm. the summer of 1985. And after Netscape went public uh, with you know, no profits and not that much revenue but a tremendous market cap, everybody who ever had even a passing notion of taking their own internet company public uh, suddenly realized that the window was wide open to do so. And so they started leaping in. So just as from 1995 to 2000, everyone was jamming the door trying to take their internet company public, Uh, after South Seas, all kinds of curious little companies sprang up um, that uh, tried to take advantage of this hot market for what we would term as equities. And one of the funniest ones, which has almost an exact parallel to the internet bubble, was uh, a firm that described their offering literally as, quote, carrying on an undertaking of great advantage, but nobody to know what it is. So (laughs) it, it was, you know, to us that sounds funny that people would sell stock in a company, but they wouldn't reveal what their business was. The exact same thing happened over and over again with the Internet. They, they called, there was even a term for it called blank check companies. Mm-hmm. And they would essentially say, we're going to do something with the Internet. And, and that's, that was the end of their offering. They would not tell anything beyond that. Uh, or even, we want to do something with the Internet, and once we have the funds, we're going to figure it out. Yes. And so, mm-hmm. uh, you, know, you know, 400 years after the South Sea bubble collapse and all those little companies... Surrounding South Sea collapsed. People just did the exact same thing,
1: and so it collapsed because people didn't actually come back with real stuff from the South Sea, and yeah, after the, the, the hype, you know, after because, yeah.
2: uh, the fundamentals don't support it because you know, once uh, you know, no profits are to be had. After a while, people start to wonder. But what really takes place also is that um, it, it's more about faith than it is about reality, um, because. Faith drove this higher, just like faith drew Bitcoin much higher. but once people 's confidence starts eroding, things reverse very quickly because there 's nothing not to beat on Bitcoin on too much, but there 's nothing about Bitcoin which is at all different than it was two years ago. You know everything is exactly the same. The only thing that really happened was that one particular website got hacked and went out of business. but it has to do with confidence because even if there 's a hundred other websites that do the same thing, the fact that one went under uh... makes people wonder well what if it could happen where i put my money you know so it, it just it, it erodes people's faith in it and that that creates a big discount on what people were willing to pay beforehand
1: let's move now to eighteen thirty seven you talk about the panic of eighteen thirty seven with president jackson at the time the first bank of the united states so what was the panic about and how did that get resolved
2: well andrew jackson uh... was an interesting figure um, in, in his early days, um, he had some rough business experiences uh, that that really poisoned his entire disposition toward um, toward paper money and bankers. Um, at the at, when he, when he was much younger, he had sold off uh, a tremendous amount of land to our mind at least sixty eight thousand acres in exchange for some promissory notes. And he took those notes and kind of parlayed them into buying you know his own trading posts and the supplies and so forth, and so he took someone's pledge and he used that in turn to make his own pledge to buy you know real goods that he could sell in his own enterprise. But what happened was that the promissory note was never uh, paid, and he was saddled with debt for years and years and and this really gave him a a, a lifetime hatred of anything. That wasn't, you know, gold in hand, you know, something solid you can really hold on to, not just a a sheet of paper with some promises on it. Mm
0: -hmm. And
2: at the time of his presidency, um, there was a push to create um, a central bank uh, for the United States. You know, the United States had had one before, and its charter had expired. Um, And then the second bank came up, you know, much to his um, consternation. And uh, at the time, too, if you think about what the United States was, was like back then, uh, it was all about land. And there was a tremendous amount of land out west um, that could be, you know, and by them out west, you know, Chicago was way out west at the time. But everything from there on out uh, was an attractive new object to covet and purchase and, and, and sell and, and appreciate and the land sales became just manic back then um, and people used the tremendous amount of credit that had been created by this new central bank to speculate in land but as with say Florida in the mid-1920s or Houston in the early 1980s um, once the credit dried up um, things collapsed in a, in a terribly big hurry and so um, uh, this was uh, a great mark uh, in the early financial history of the country when when all these land speculators found themselves ruined uh, by this flood of credit. And this is kind of what we're experiencing now because you know, we look at the past five years of our own stock market and it has taken literally trillions and trillions of dollars all through the globe uh, to create a very, uh, one would say, uh, dangerous and speculative credit bubble based on principally equity assets right now. And so this is very much what happened back then. Uh, Credit was created, flooded the market, accelerated asset prices until it broke. And when it breaks, it breaks very quickly and almost without expectation.
1: So you're saying that we're in a similar situation now that with uh, the tapering of quantitative easing, that the uh, credit bubble is going to be withdrawn and and the stock market will fall sharply because it won't have that. Well, behind it.
2: the curious thing about, you know, the, the world we live in right now is that it's as if the Fed has embraced responsibility for making sure the stock market stays high. Um, you know, I'm sure you've seen the graph before. I'm sure many of your listeners have. Uh, the, the closest correlate you can find to equity markets these days is simply the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve. You mm-hmm. one right on top of the other, and they are virtually lockstep. And, uh, you know, one thing you can guarantee is that if tomorrow, you know, Janet Yellen got up on a soapbox and said, attention, attention, the Federal Reserve is not here to prop up stock prices and, you know, this tapering business this is nuts. We've got this huge balance sheet. It's time to start selling this stuff. Not only are we going to taper, we're going to begin selling off our balance sheet as swiftly as we can. Well, the the market would fall a thousand points within moments. I mean, you know, this is ridiculous. Of course, this would never happen. But the Fed has become the principal buyer indirectly of the stock market and that they're keeping the asset values high. And, you know, the, the sort of it's different this time notion being spread about now, which I don't have any great answer for, is you know, why on earth would the Fed ever want uh, asset prices to fall? Why would they not simply continue to closely monitor the situation, and if a break ever takes place, they'll just crank up QE X one more time and say, no, 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 sorry, 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 there's not going to be any taper. We're going to, instead of $85 billion a month, we're going to make it $200 billion a month, mm-hmm. you yeah. uh, know. And it's, it's funny, too, because just as all these different panics in the past, people have some vague notion that uh, you, you, the, the quote you hear again and again and again from bull and bear alike is, we know this is going to end badly. Yes. You know, no sane person out there says, this is all the sense in the world. I mean, what's going to yes. happen is the Fed's going to uh, elegantly and gracefully sell off their balance sheet uh, over the course of time. I think it's just going to be peaches and cream. No, everyone says, from Jim Kramer on out, you know, this is going to end badly. But they just don't know when.
1: <laughs> yes. Very good. All right, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour, Tim Knight, is an ardent student of financial history. His new book is called uh, Panic, Prosperity, and Progress, Five Centuries of History and the Markets. Uh, his website and blog is slopeofhope.com. We'll be back after this.
0: You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan.
1: Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Tim Knight. Uh, He's a uh, student of financial history. His new book is called Panic, Prosperity, and Progress, Five Centuries of History in the Markets. His website, slopeofhope.com. Welcome back to the show, Tim.
2: Very much appreciate that, Jordan.
1: We're not going to be able to get through all the different panics you had in history, but I want to go to the most recent one, which is what you call the Great Recession of uh, 2008. Tell me what caused this huge surge in housing prices. I mean, here you have Alan Greenspan, who's supposed to be the, the smartest guy around. He's got 1,000 PhDs at the Fed watching every possible move. How could they let this get out of hand and then then have the collapse we had in 2008, 2009?
2: Yeah, well, you know, in in retrospect, it seems that, um, and they may not have used these words, but after what happened with the Internet collapse and, uh, you know, the downturn in the economy, they wanted another bubble. They needed another bubble because bubbles are, they're fun. They feel good. Most people are happy. I mean, they're good politically. Uh, They're good for most of the population. And uh, when people get accustomed to things going uh, higher, you know, they, they need one created. And so what seemed the most, uh, logical place to uh, seek asset appreciation would be housing because you know the government had a big hand in this. Um, they, uh, through Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, the, these are important guarantors of um, credit for housing and they were complicit in a way uh, by way of how the rating agencies handled um, their own assessments of all the debt out there. So uh, for a lot of folks that who under normal credit circumstances could not have afforded housing, they were suddenly able to. And of course, you know, we've all heard about the, you know, the the strawberry picker and make 15,000 bucks a year, nice and a half million dollar house, this, that, and the other. And if you're essentially able to create monopoly money for anybody who has a pulse, um, obviously this is going to push up assets, especially in certain parts of of the country where new houses and a lot of subprime borrowers uh, are ready to roll, and this had a secondary effect because on top of uh, all the new housing uh, being purchased and uh, you got this wealth effect amongst people, and folks who had nothing to do with subprime suddenly found they were able to access their house like an ATM and and pull out these uh, home equity lines of credit, which fueled consumer spending. And so the the curious thing about uh, this particular bubble, unlike, say, the Internet bubble, was that it was much more widespread because, you know, about two-thirds of the country has a house and virtually all those people enjoyed this appreciating asset they were living in and were able to access it. And that had the secondary effect of fueling all this buying out there of whatever, you know, riding lawnmowers or new cars or, you know, big screen TVs they wanted. So it uh, it was a much more widespread item than, say, the Internet bubble, which, although very well publicized, was still kind of a sector-based mania.
1: And why do you think Greenspan didn't see that this was a bubble? Because at the time, he said, this is not a bubble. Everything's just fine in the housing. I don't see any problems at all, basically, is what he was saying at the time.
2: Sure. Well, I mean, you know, if you look at what Yellen is saying these days, you know, because she, she's asked point blank uh, about bubble, and, and, you know, she chooses her words carefully, but she'll say things along the lines of, well, you know, stocks don't appear to be bubble-like. And it would be you know, imprudent, uh, I think, for a Fed official to say, you know, holy Moses, things are just insane. What are you people thinking paying these prices? <laughs> you know, um, and so it's just never going to happen. You know, let's just imagine that we are like this very day, like this interview marks the top of the market. And let's say a year from now, people look back and said, God, we did it three times in a decade. In a single decade, we've had three huge bubbles and it collapsed every single time. When will we ever learn? And the thing is that there's no reason that anybody in the Fed uh, whatever their private thoughts might be, is going to put forth any notion because there's nothing in it for them or or their their governing body. I mean, there's there's, there's nothing to be gained from them, you know, because they're not they're not the asset managers of the United States to say you folks are nuts and everybody get out now while you still can, you know, it's just no. Benefit. Well,
1: I mean, Greenspan did say irrational exuberance, you know, end of '96. Yeah,
2: and, and I think he kind of learned his lesson, because it, the funny thing in retrospect is he said it, you know, almost five years before the top, and so yes. things were actually the very height of sensibility when he said that, uh, but, you know, he, he let it slip that, you know, these things seem a little frothy out there, and, you know, the market uh, just hammered him the next day, and um, that he probably made a mental note, I'm never going to say anything like that again <laughs> in my life. Um you know, except years after he was retired and could kind of reflect on uh, on some of those past bubbles. But right, so let's take
1: your so, – so learning – now, you've, you've been studying all these bubbles for many, many years and all these – so here we are, uh, March 2014. You think we're pretty much in a bubble now, f- fueled by the Fed. W- what is your prediction as to what's going to happen going forward here? Because, as you say, you think it's going to end badly. I mean, are we going to have another big up spike before it ends, or are we near the top? What is your – your prediction of how this is all going to unwind?
2: Well, I would never venture my own prediction about how the the macro scheme is going to unwind because people way smarter than me, and there's a lot of those, uh, can't figure this out. In other words, if you say that this time in human history marks the most gigantic uh, 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 peak of credit creation, what happens next? What happens to currencies? What happens to debt? What happens to countries? And you know, will they go to war over these things? Uh, that all is way too big for me to think about. I'm a simple chartist. You know, I look at mostly stock charts. And um, to my eyes, uh, I think you know, I'm not going to say, well, today is the day. You know, everything's going to go down now. What I will say is things seem extraordinarily vulnerable. And what I'm doing myself is chart by chart, And I look at hundreds every single day. I'm just trying to pluck out those that are most prone to that vulnerability. So if you, if I look at Netflix, you know, you can tell me how overvalued it is, but as a chartist, it's like, no thanks. I'm not touching that thing. Uh, whereas if I could look at another chart, uh, like Polaris Industries, I could say, that's a chart I can short because that looks, you know, if we get any even hint of weakness in the market, that one's going to lead the way down. So that, that's, that's my, that's my cautious, Uh, uh, answer to your question, is I think things look terribly vulnerable now, and for those who want to hedge their bets, uh, I think it's smart to look at those charts and ask yourself if something's going to get hit, what's going to get the worst the fastest.
1: So you go for the most vulnerable, most overexposed, most hyped stocks that are showing some signs of weakness, is that basically what you're looking for?
2: Yeah, and to put it another way, I'm looking for a stock that will tell me I'm wrong the fastest. So that if it's like, no, net, you know, I keep harping on Netflix, Netflix is so uh, immune, it seems, to any weakness that there's really nothing I can say about when I'm wrong except, oh, another lifetime high. And that's just, to me, the dangerous way to go. I'd rather look for something that already is showing signs of breaking. And if it breaks that uh, failure of its own, in other words, if it, if it dusts itself off and gets off the mat and continues higher it's a lot better risk-reward ratio for me to say, okay, I'm wrong and I'm out and the damage wasn't that bad. Yeah, very good.
1: Well, thanks so much. My guest this hour has been Tim Knight. His new book is called Panic, Prosperity, and Progress, Five Centuries of History in the Markets. His website, slopeofhope.com. We only got through a small amount of the panics we've had in history. So it's been a terrific interview and thanks so much for being on The Money Answer Show, Tim.
2: I appreciate it. Thank you, Jordan.
1: And we'll be back with another edition of The Money Answer Show next week.